Hey, y'all. Welcome to he- uh, Conversation for Heavy Cardboard. I am delighted to welcome a man of many talents. He holds a doctorate in aerospace engineering, is a mission integrator for SpaceX, has written a handful of children's books teaching them about space, as well as the book Leaving Earth, Why One Way to Mars Makes Sense. He's designed a handful of board games, including the upcoming massive space game, Stellar Horizon. He's a YouTube star, having cooked some cricket tacos and delicious-looking mealworm muffins uh, for cooking on Mars, and apparently is the Great White Norse greatest know-it-all, eh? It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Rader to the show, so welcome to Heavy Cardboard, Andrew. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is this is exciting because normally whenever we do these these interviews or conversations with Heavy Cardboard, it's always with somebody board game centric. And now that you are, well, a board game player as well as designer, it's not the sole thing in your life. So this is this is pretty exciting for us, for sure. So definitely appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. Yeah. All right, so we'll start off with the serious stuff, all right? We'll get this out of the way. I know you're a big fan of karaoke. What is your (laughs) go-to karaoke song? Oh, those, uh, actually, I have a few karaoke videos on YouTube, but they're uh, hidden or private, so you can't (laughs) see them. Um, Go-to song, Space Oddity. But I always change the lyrics a little bit, because he always talks about, in the song, how uh, he doesn't know that much about space. Um, oh, Rocket Man! Actually, that, that's a really good one too. Elton John, Rocket Man. I really All right. like that no. one. See, and um, I didn't want to stereotype. I didn't want to be like, yeah, "Nah, he's a space yeah. guy," so they're all going to be space songs. But may, well, maybe actually that that fits. Oh uh, no, they're they're definitely not all space songs. In fact, uh, I used to do Eminem a lot, and I used to dress in the um, tank top and uh, do rag. I think it's called. Awesome. Uh, I used to do rapping. Yeah, uh, Tupac also. Um, so. You can do rap if you practice a lot, actually. Yeah, uh, the, I, I think the heaviest rap I ever karaokeed was Young MC's Bust the Move, you know? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, so yeah, e- yeah. either that or Humpty Dance, but that, that seems pretty atypical. Um, that's awesome, dude. I we may, we may try and get you to do a little Tupac at the end of this. We'll see. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on a serious note, though... Um, so you're an aerospace engineer for SpaceX. That's fascinating to me. What got you interested in space and, and just space exploration in general? Yeah, I mean, I think all kids like space. So I was interested in space when I was young, learning the names of the planets, but also interested in dinosaurs and construction. And I was really into like World War II, actually, from a very young age. Um, but, you know, I wasn't sort of interested in space in the sense that I thought we could go there and I thought it was something we should do. Okay. And that's sort of been the direction of my life since then. Uh, my mother w- worked for an airline, so I was really into airplanes. And because I was in- interested in history and World War II, I was really interested in especially World War II airplanes. And I always wanted to build my own Mitsubishi Zero and stuff like that. Awesome. It's a really long range. I think it would be a really practical plane to build for yourself because it's super long range, super easy handling. Um, and you know, you could just cruise for a long period of time. You could like almost fly across the United States on a, in a single engine plane. It's a really good plane in certain ways. <laughs> so ha- have, have, have you actually given that any real thought about trying to go about doing that? I don't have enough time, but back in high school, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to make enough money to 
build an airplane in my garage and then take it down to the local airfield and fly it across the country and fly it around. And it would be like a perfectly realistic World War II Mitsubishi Zero. And I'd probably get a lot of strange looks because that's a Japanese plane. Sure. Be um, like, um, <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. So you don't want to, you weren't interested in building one of the kits that they, you know, that I know that are available out there, build your own plane stuff. You, you wanted to go authentic World War II. Yeah, I guess um, I get these big ideas about things I could do by myself, like build a house or something like that. And if I build a house, it'd definitely be a hobbit home in the, you know, in a hill somewhere, just like start tunneling. And then uh, it would have like really good thermal insulation properties. Uh, but the thing is, I never have enough time for these things. So I kind of have focused on things that I actually can do, like books and games and stuff like that, rather than building airplanes. Hobbit or right. <laughs> That's fascinating. So so here a lot of us would be thinking, wow, that'd be kind of cool, you know, live in the side of a mountain. You're like, well, the thermal properties. No, I guess that makes total sense, right? Uh so what what led you then from being interested in in airplanes and in that then to decide, hey, I'm gonna go into aerospace engineering? Yeah, um, I went to school uh, in aerospace engineering, which is both air and space, hence right. the name aerospace. Uh, <laughs> really, really focused more on airplanes, actually. Um, so I went in thinking I would learn how to design airplanes and to build the next Boeing 787 or whatever it was uh, back at the time. But I, I sort of got interested in space just a little bit. And I really liked Star Trek, for example. But in Star Trek, they go from solar system to solar system at warp speed. You know, they can go from here to Alpha Centauri in like a day or a few right. hours or something Fantastical like that. space, right? Yeah. And I always thought, unless we can do something like that and travel to other stars, what's the point of space? You know? So I actually used to be one of these really negative people about space where I thought, oh, well, there's nothing near term we can do with our technology that's very interesting compared with like Star Trek or something like that. Sure. Um, but I had a really influential friend and I read a couple of really influential books, especially uh, Robert Zubrin's The Case for Mars. Okay. And it got me thinking about what we really can do today, which is really interesting. There are a lot of places in our solar system. I mean, our solar system is a fascinating place with like 500 different moon-sized worlds. Um, and, you know, there's basically infinite things we can do in our own solar system. And th th that's one, there, there's a lot we can do today. Number two, unless we start doing those things today with our current technology, we're never going to get to Star Trek. It's not like we can wait around and, oh, some one will invent warp drive one day, and then we'll just, like, get on the spaceship, starship enterprise and, and go to another star. It's got to be a gradual anymore. increase to that point, It has right? to be a gradual increase. But not only that, you have to create the incentives for people to develop their technologies. So it's really important for us to stretch ourselves with our current technology and go as far as we can now, go to another planet, have people settled there. Um, just do as much as we possibly can. Take the, the biggest leap we possibly can, and then it helps fill in that gap. If we want to get to Mars faster, for example, we ha have to have people there in order to develop technologies, uh, de develop engines that will get us there faster, develop bigger spacecraft, to better, develop better you know, landing capabilities and stuff like this, right? Like if we want to go and get to other stars, we have to start doing what we can with what we have now. That and so that makes me really total sense, yeah what we do now, you know, uh, because it's actually like really amazing what we can do now. And there has, in the past, there hasn't been this kind of genre in sci-fi where it's focused on the medium term. It's all Star Wars, Star Trek, which is great. I love that. 
but there hasn't been so much sort of focused on what we could do in the next 100 years, maybe 200 years in our own solar system. Um, recently, actually, I saw The Expanse, which is just fantastic. I can't. I, I am a really big fan of that show. Yes. And, and that's kind of the sci-fi show I've always been dreaming of because it's a sci-fi show that's pretty realistic in our own solar system. And it's like, what can we do today? You know, it's all the technologies in it are plausible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's no physics breakthroughs needed. Uh, like, I'm not discounting the fact that we might someday be able to travel faster than light or something like that. But we just don't think right now that it's theoretically possible. Therefore, we can't count on it. You know, it might happen someday, might not, uh, don't know, but I'm not going to hold my breath. So The Expanse is a show where all the, the technologies you see are things that we kind of know would pretty much work. I mean, they have, they do have that like drive, which is a little bit more advanced than our current propulsion systems. That the but guy theoretically, in the you could at least wrap your head around, yeah, maybe. Right, right, right. You don't have to suspend disbelief that much. Like Star Trek has some elements that are basically magic, transporter, <laughs> right. um, uh, warp drive. But then actually, it also has some elements that are kind of really easy to do. Like a photon torpedo is relatively unpowerful compared to like a fusion bomb or something like that, right? Like why doesn't a photon torpedo just obliterate every ship? They <laughs> must be intentionally lowering the yield of a photon torpedo, clearly, because ships get hit with it even without shields and they don't blow up. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, man, I watched your uh, deconstruction, I guess is a good way to put it, of The Martian. And oh, yeah. I, I think it would be enjoyable to a point to watch a movie like that with you because you were like, hey, no, this actually, most of it makes plausible sense but something like star wars i i'd be like man can we just watch the movie you're tearing it apart come on no i <laughs> it's, not, it's actually the opposite funnily enough like the closer something is to reality or to real science that's when i notice kind of discrepancies like in the martian you see i kind of pointed at all the things around the edges the martian is a great movie by the way and it's pretty realistic um, I think I pointed out maybe 10 things that were they got wrong. Right. But, you know, I also said on whole, it was pretty good. Like, I was being really nitpicky, and I acknowledged that I was being nitpicky. Sure. Same thing with The Expanse. Those, those are all really good. Um, but something like Star Trek or Star Wars, I'm really quite able to just suspend disbelief and say, okay, warp drive, done. You know, that's the answer, right? And Obviously, as long as you just right. that's totally fine. I, I wouldn't nitpick about it at all. So... So I mean, the closer we get to reality, the more nitpicky you would be. Okay, that makes yeah. sense, actually. I get that. All right. So Especially with historical anachronism. So, like, Wonder Woman, I thought, well, I mean, it was an okay movie, but that one, I could not help but point out things that were, they, they got wrong with it. Like, they don't have a, the thing that bothers me the most is um, a lack of sense of time and space. So, like, I don't know if you saw the movie, but they're in the Ottoman Empire. And okay. they, there's a plane, and then they get on this ship, and the next morning they wake up in London, and the Ottoman Empire is like 1,500 miles away, and so they got there overnight. That is, that just, that's just laziness, right? Um, <laughs> why did they do that? Or, or like Star Trek Beyond, they're at the border of the Klingon Empire, and it took them like a week to get there. And then during the battle, they're you know heading back, and it takes them like five minutes to get back to Earth. Right. Just doesn't make sense. It's not consistent, sure. And, it's not consistent. and and you being a historical war gamer, 
that kind of lends itself to no, this is not keep no, this is not right. Yeah, exactly. Like Ludendorff. I mean, I, I didn't. So he was a historical person. Uh, he was important later on in the twenties and thirties with Hitler's rise to power. You don't have to turn him into a villain. That's, okay. So the, I think that Wonder Woman went against its entire purpose because it's kind of motto is that um, there's good and bad inherent in all humans. And it right. was about the subtlety of evil that's at the core uh, of all humanity, right? And it's like all of us are contributing to this, and we all created this catastrophe of the First World War, right? And then, so it's about subtlety of human intentions, right? And then they create this massive supervillain who just has uh, supernatural powers and wants to take over the world for no particular reason. Like, it's like you kind of destroyed the whole purpose of the movie by going way over the top. You could have just had a movie about the Germans who are fighting because they've been told to and because they think they're right and because from their perspective it actually makes sense to them and stuff like this. Instead, it's this supervillain trying to destroy humanity just for no good reason whatsoever. While I agree with you, I do wonder if they just wanted to go so fantastical that they didn't want to start treading into, mm, don't want to get too touchy on the subject. And I'm not justifying, I'm just wondering you know, whether or not that was a conscious decision to go that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, it is a superhero movie. So just... So <laughs> there's that, right? <laughs> All right. So so we go from being an aerospace engineer, you know, hey, let's go to Mars, to board games. How does that... How did that transition happen? Well, it's not a transition. Um, I was always really into board games since I was really young. I used to take to my grandmother's place. She lived far away in Victoria, B uh, BC, in Canada. And my brother and I used to take Axis and Allies when we were, I think, awesome. like six years old or something like that. And we didn't fully understand the rules even, but we would just play that all day. Um, so Axis and Allies was definitely my starting game. And then, you know, I... I had a lot of fun with that, but then I wanted to mod it. So I got started making my own maps because I thought it was like, oh, well, you know, Russia really should have a lot more territories between the Germans and Moscow. So let's add all these other territories and there should be other types of units and stuff. So basically I tried to turn Axis and Allies into World in Flames, which is the game I eventually discovered. And as a kid, uh, just decided not to. Well, I discovered Axis and, or uh, World in Flames actually a lot later. I discovered sure, that. Sure, no, no. What yeah. I'm saying, though, is that you you didn't know that you were trying to turn it into War in, uh, World in Flames, but essentially oh, exactly. that's what you were trying to do. Right, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so World in Flames, though? I mean, that's that's not a big game. No, I, I kid. Uh, for those listening or, or watching that aren't familiar with World in Flames, um, it is a massive 100-plus-hour strategic World War II game that kind of meshes war game and politics, yeah? Yeah, definitely, yep. So so how did you – I guess it wasn't really a big leap then going from it's, your own World in Flames to this. Right. Um, well, yeah, I actually – friends have described Stellar Horizon as World in Flames in space. It uses a lot of the same ideas and features – it's totally different in the sense that it's a space development game. It doesn't even have that much conflict in it necessarily, although you can do that. But um, it's more about space development and exploration. But the game mechanics, the counter layout, the kind of look and feel of it is very World and Flames inspired. It uses 10-sided dice, um, uses a lot of the same ideas. Um, so it definitely comes from a World and Flames place. It is a shorter, smaller game. 
Stellar Horizon, the World of Planes, but still it is a monster game. Right, I was going to say, shorter, but you have to understand the scale in which we're talking about here. This, this, I mean, this could be an entire weekend, you know, two, three day game, right? Yeah, I, I think a campaign, a campaign would take a weekend. Um, okay. A friend of a friend of mine and I, we can play it out in a single session, but it's a long session. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, whole day going to midnight or something like that. Okay. But World of Flames, I go to these conventions for World of Flames. Uh, used to go a couple times a year. Sometimes, Usually I go about once a year now. And we lock ourselves in a room from 9 a.m. until midnight every day for 10 days in a row. And we sometimes finish. Dude. One game. Okay. We're heavy cardboard. We like our heavy, meaty games. I, um, I I have a whole wall dedicated to war games, but wow, seriously, that is amazing. It's not actually the biggest. Um, well, no, it's not campaign for North Africa. It's not you know anything like that. But it's it's come on, it's still ten days of wall to wall game. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it does take up a lot of room too. A couple tables, a couple big tables. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, over to you, court size. Sorry, well, you you designed a couple of expansions for well, nah, well, yeah, not expansions, not really I, well, expansions right? First. Actually, I did some expansions first for for World and Flames, uh, Commandos and Flames, right. and a production system for World and Flames and new combat tables and things like that. Uh, because I got to know Harry, the creator of World and Flames, at these conventions. And was this like at a, a MonsterCon or ConSim World or or what was it? <laughs> It was a dedicated World in Flames one in Germany, actually. Oh, um, wow. A friend from England, he used to say, I like to go to Germany to play World War II. So uh, we uh, went to this old hunting lodge. It was really awesome. Schutzenhall, so like a, a hunting lodge in the German mountains, the hills, actually. I don't know if they really have mountains. Um, wow. The German hills and drink beer all the time. And I also went to the U.S. version, which is in Michigan every year. Actually, there's one coming up. If people are interested in World in Flames... There's one in Michigan in August, August 21st around then. Um, you can probably Google that uh, convention. It's called the WIFCON, World in Flames Convention, WIFCON. So it's just people getting together to play World in Flames in a place. Um, but Germany and the U.S. are really different in the way they handle it. Um, Germany is like the United Nations. So people come from all over Europe to play in this Schützenhall, shooting hall. And uh, there's, you know, the Scandinavian contingent, there's the French contingent, the Italians, the, and so it's like all these different languages being spoke, spoken. And it's really fun to play with Germans, too, because they're like pointing at the map and talking about Schwerpunkt and uh, stuff like this and the, like this tree here. And they really mean it like that. Literally, that's just the word for it. Right. That, that's got to be a little surreal, though, is it not? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, I mean, here we are. Modeling World War Two while in Germany with playing again. That that's just a, yeah, a little surreal, I would imagine. Well, so, the other thing. Is, oh, go in ahead. In Germany, uh, symbolism of World War Two is banned. Actually, Correct. like swastikas. Like yeah. So, like a lot of games, you will use like swastikas in their game pieces, um, but most games avoid it just because it's awful, but also because it's banned in certain countries. Yep. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a when I went to Spiel uh, Essen last year. There was actually a game called Democracy Under Siege that they were going to bring to the convention, but they decided, you know what, we can't because it had a swastika on the cover, a World War II uh, scope game. So, yeah, totally, totally get that. So we go from World War II 
and Commandos in Flames expansion for World in Flames to Fatal Alliances. Yeah, Fatal Alliances is a game I designed two years ago, I guess, although it took a few years. Um, and it's a World War One variant. Uh, it's not. It's a completely standalone game of, but it's based on the uh, World in Flames system. So it's a World War One version, um, and it came about. Well, there was actually a couple of versions of it before. So it's kind of Fatal Alliances Three, I guess it's called. Although it's sort of just rebooted, I guess. Right. Um, but if you look at the assault table, if you take away all the armor from World in Flames, all the tanks and all the really like the stukas and the really good planes and stuff like that and um you take away the blitz capabilities to break through and stuff mm -hmm. it kind of turns into world war one already in world and flames so uh, it kind of is a natural step to go to a world war one version of world and flames just by not having tanks and stuff obviously there's a lot of political differences the map sure. has to be redrawn of europe and um in some senses, you might think that's a little more boring. Like, it's obviously more static. The, the well, yeah, just by the nature of the wars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, studying World War One, I, I think, it's as interesting as World War Two, but in different ways. The politics of World War One is really fascinating. Oh, I think um, it's far more fascinating World War One than World War Two. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So it has a lot more political stuff. And if you look at the Eastern Front and the Middle East Fronts and Africa, you know, these are places that were really dynamic in the First World War. Um, so it wasn't just kind of the stalemate of, of the Western Front. Um, and, you know, the fact that it's a new time and there's there's new technologies emerging, it makes aircraft surprisingly important because you have this ability to dominate the whole front with your new, you know, Fokker Eindeckers or your, uh, the Red Baron and stuff like this for, for an amount of time. Um, and it's, it's a war where Germany has the ability to really challenge the Royal Navy. You know, Germany had the second biggest Navy in the world in the first world. War. Right. So it's kind of, it's, it's a much more balanced one. Like in world war two, I think the Axis never really had a chance. Um, and in the first world war, they really did. And, Another fascinating thing is, like in World War One, the Germans almost won at two separate points that were disconnected by four years, which is just crazy. That they almost won um, in 1914 uh, when they were stopped at the Marne when they were going to yep. take over France. Right? Had, had they gone and taken over Paris, right? Yep, yep. And then it was kind of stalemate for four years. And then they really did win in the East. Like people talk about invading Russia and how it's hard. But this is a situation where invading Russia actually worked. You know, in World War One, the Germans defeated Russia, hands down. And then they had an opportunity to deal the West a blow in 1918 in the Michael Offensive. So Germany almost won at the start and end of the war, and then it collapsed suddenly. That's just fascinating. That's, uh, you know, I, I guess I hadn't really looked at it in, in that regard, the fact that they let it slip through their fingers twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it wasn't kind of like, like World War II, it's a totally different dynamic from most wars where you have, you know, like the American Civil War, uh, there's a high watermark and then a decline to defeat, right? But the decline to defeat takes from 1863 down to 1865. Five, right, yeah. In, in uh, World War II, where basically the turning point is around 1942 and then that's kind of like three years of decline. But World War One, it wasn't like that at all. It's kind of like a bimodal. There's like two times where they could have won. Um, which is really 
bizarre. The other thing is America always talks about World War II, but I actually think their contribution, at least in Europe, was greater in World War I um, because there's no question in World War II that Japan would have been defeated by America and that America, you know, made the decisive contribution in World War II. But, you know, in World War II, probably the Russians would have beaten Germany eventually, right? It wasn't right, America's right. decisive. And you can see that just by when America actually got involved in in the war in Europe, the Russians had already won. Before any Americans were ever in contact with German forces, Russia had already won the war on in, in every front. Um, and even when they were in contact, 80% uh, or something of German forces were facing the Russians, not the West, right? right. So, uh, and Lend-Lease, yes, you know, it was important, but certainly not decisive. I think it was like 10% of Russia's materiel production, something like that. So, um, and the war in the air, I mean, I'm not saying America didn't contribute, and certainly America in World War II did lead to the liberation of Western Europe, otherwise it might have been communist or something like that. And there's also the possibility that Russia and Germany might have made some kind of mutual peace. But I would say that you could argue that um, Germany's defeat in World War II was not as a result of the U.S., the United States. Um, but in World War I, you could make a strong case that Germany's defeat was, in a large part, due to the United States, the entry of the United States, um, both in the material support for the Western Allies, which was actually larger in World War I than World War II, yep. and also um, everyone was exhausted. Like the Germans in their 1918 offensive, they were kind of running out of steam, and the Western Allies were also exhausted. And the influx of American troops at the decisive moment—it's like that battle scene in every action movie where people come, the cavalry here comes. Come, the here comes the reinforcements, right? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happened in the First World War, and the U.S. contribution was really decisive in in that sense. So, with that said, then, so does World War One interest you more than World War Two? Then, with uh, I mean, I the reason I ask is, I mean, you did you did design World in Flames for World War One, essentially, right? Yeah, I would say it does, but in different ways. Like, I would say the actual kind of tactics and battles and stuff in World War II might be more interesting because it's more dynamic. And, you know, the Pacific Fair. War is interesting in terms of the fleet battles and midway and aircraft carriers and stuff like that. So in a tactical sense, maybe World War II is a bit more interesting. But in a geopolitical, uh, geopolitical sense, World War One much more interesting and much more important if you look at kind of the outcome of the world today in the Middle East, the, the maps on the, or the lines on the map, the distribution of countries in Yugoslavia, Eastern Europe, the collapsed, what, four major empires of the world, uh, totally changed the politics of the entire world, the First World War. So my question then is, was Stellar Horizon always the, I don't want to say end goal, but was that always going to be the game that you wanted to design or was it really Fatal Alliances and now that, you know, space is your, you know, your, your line of work or your profession. Um, you decided, Hey, let me take this into space kind of. No, it's always been stellar horizon actually. Um, since I've been working on this game for more than 10 years. Oh, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> more, more than 10, stellar horizon. I've been working on for more than 10 years, but it's kind of gone off and on the back burner because I was kind of concerned that people wouldn't like, a really complicated game about space, right? Because it is World in Flames in space, basically, or Fatal Alliances in space. And I'm not sure how many uh, really serious 
war gamers or board gamers there are out there for a game like that. Um, so that, that's what I was um, a bit concerned about. So I just and I didn't just kind of really didn't know where to start in terms of publishing games. I had published things for World in Flames and Fatal Alliances, but a lot of those connections were kind of set up through uh, Harry Rowland, the designer of World of Flames, and um, having worked with the people in World of Flames and things like that. So it wasn't kind of independent. ADG, so I've done another- right? Right, Australian design group, yeah. Um, so I did another number of other games that were smaller. I have a game about American politics, just called Politics. Yep, and, and Evolve, uh, right? Pardon me? And Evolve. And evolve. The, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, games yeah. you, now you, you funded those on Kickstarter, yeah? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So evolve and politics. Yeah. And, but those are kind of party games because if I, you know, you play it in an hour with um, two to kind of seven ish people, um, because I think Euro style games are really popular. Board gaming is super popular, but I kind of had the sense that people weren't as into really complicated games. So I wasn't sure if there was, you know, I love playing Stellar Horizon. My friends love it, but I wasn't sure if there was kind of this interest for a really big game about I, space rather than just like a Euro game. Right. Well, I, I will say this. Just, I mean, obviously we, we have a pretty good feel for the pulse of the heavier end of the market. Maybe not the war game market per se. Specifically, we're getting there. But uh, for the heavier Euro, heavier, just heavy gamer, it's growing by leaps and bounds. It really, really is. So I think, I think the timing might be really, really good uh, for something like this. Now, I don't know if that was something that was planned on your end or if it just worked out that way, but how did how did this come about with Compass Games then? Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, and uh, really good to hear, because I was kind of, I always thought that eventually everything would go to digital, right? Everything would be a computer game eventually. I totally um, think it's going the opposite direction, actually. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so with Compass, Compass published Fatal Alliances, and I guess because they, they haven't really done any space games before. Right, exactly. Um, so that, that's why I'm really curious about this, because they're, they're usually the pretty kind of hardcore grognard, uh, just true traditional world war game or uh, war game or card driven war game, etc. So this is kind of a, a step out from them. So I'm, I'm definitely fascinated to hear about this. Well, I think that's actually why it's a good fit, because they have an audience who like big games. And I think that's almost more important than an audience who likes space, because I think almost, you know, everyone I know likes space, but that doesn't mean they play a really heavy game about space. Fair. Right? Okay. Um, so, so it's kind of almost more a match for people who like heavy games rather than it is for people who like space. But obviously, you kind of have to have both. Yeah, I that that makes sense um so did you just pitch this to them and they you know said hey you know since you guys did fatal alliances how about taking a look at space yeah pr pretty much um what i said was you know i've had this game in development for about 10 years um it's kind of similar in mechanics to world in flames it would kind of be recognizable to people like that um and they you know recognize that world of flames is a really great game they wanted to do fatal alliances which is a, a variant of it um so i think they were really interested in doing that and something different for them and i think that was kind of exciting actually for them to try to branch out into a different uh market different uh region yeah that, so, okay different. all right so 
I'm, I mean, legitimately, there's a reason that I asked you to come on today. And, and you and I have been talking about this since February. This, well, before it got pushed to 2018, this was one of my two most anticipated games of the year. So that therefore now it's my most anticipated game of 2018. So I'm super excited about the, just the concept of what Stellar Horizon represents being a, uh, build your own space program. Yeah. Kind of a four X in space. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's definitely a four X in space. Um, it has, it's it, the mechanics are a bit similar to Wilm Flint, although I mean, the map is really different. Um, so hold on, let, not, let me stop you right there real quick. So for those that aren't really familiar with world in flames, unpack that a little for folks when you say it's a lot like it. Yeah. Break it down a little bit for folks. Right. Um, so it's counter-based, I guess. It's on a big map that takes up the majority of a table, and it's counter-based. So you have little units that you move around, and it's very phased. I guess World of Flames works because it has a turn breakdown that has very distinct steps. Procedural? Procedural, yeah, yeah. Like, you do all these things. You do you go step through a list of 20 things you do during a turn. Um, so, so because of that, you don't have to ask questions, can this do this? Because if it's in the right order, it can, you know, like, can I transport by air my uh, mountain core to this hex and then can it walk, can it move after or does it have to move before? Well, because air transport happens after land movement, you can have your mountain core walk over to your air transport and then transport it by air, but then it can't move after, right? So it's just very... Um, it's well designed because it is very procedural based in terms of steps. So that's how you handle something that's really complicated. You kind of have like this breakdown of how things work. And so Stellar Horizon also has that you do, you know, you do your movement first and then your exploration. I mean, I guess every game has, you know, steps, but sure. it's kind of just really to give a frame to it. Okay. Um, and the map is similar in a sense that it's like a big map that you lay down on the table. And the counters are similar in a sense that, um, you know, they have values associated with them um, and they're just kind of the same size of counters, which are pretty small, actually. They're half-inch by half-inch counters. Oh, they are half-inch counters. Okay. All right. And there's uh, a lot of them in Stellar Horizon. I think there's 1,600 of them. <laughs> it really is. Okay. So I didn't realize there was going to be quite that many. Uh, the reason I say that is if you go to the Compass Games game page, uh, the pre-order page for Stellar Horizon, or you go on to BGG, Board Game Geek, and you look at it, I didn't quite realize there were going to be quite that many. Well, I mean, most of them are not ships, okay? Each faction, faction is like your country, basically. Each faction can only run up to, I think, 20 ships and bases at a at a time. That's actually the maximum you could ever have. So it's not like you're going to have 1600 counter like units in play, right? Sure, sure. You, most of them are resource counters or technology markers. Like you collect uh, technology as you go and it's hidden chips. Actually, this is another way it's similar to US entry or sorry, World in the Flames is in World in Flames, you have a US entry system where um, if you do bad things, the US gets mad and you collect random tokens. And if you build up a certain amount, the US can declare war on the axis. Right. And so this is kind of similar. The technology is based on these random counters. So they're just got a question mark on one side and you draw them from a cop and it, and then that goes into your tech pool and then you spend it to develop technologies. Um, the te technologies is, is very similar to like civilization. It's a tech tree, you know, so right. you have to yep. get before you get them on the right. 
and it unlocks the technologies unlock new uh, components for your ships so your ships can get better um, and new abilities as well all right so I know some people are going to be like ah, random. So when you say that these are random uh, chip pools, essentially, um, unpack that a little bit. Go into that a little bit more if you can, as far as how that randomness comes into play in the game. Okay, well, when you're exploring, so technology is based on exploring and just producing it research on Earth and at bases. So when you go and explore a planet, you're kind of like mining a planet for research. Okay. And that's how we're, or a moon or a world. Actually, I just call them worlds because world is like anything. It's a comet, it's an asteroid, it's a planet, it's whatever. It's the sun. So um, you kind of mine them for technology and they're different and they have different types. There's biology, physics, and engineering. And as you go through each one, you, the, the planets get depleted. So as you learn more about it, there's less to learn and you get less from totally it. Totally makes so sense, right? Based on your um, ship, you can either do crewed ships or robots. You can have landers and rovers and um, probes and all, all kinds of different robots that would go to a planet and explore, or you can have like a crew. Um, and then later in the game, kind of the big ships come along and kind of just like strip mine for research all the planets until they're depleted. Um, and based on that, you roll to see how many markers you earn, how many tech markers between zero, you might get none, or you might get like three, maybe maximum. Well, that, with really again, good. you don't know when, when you're experimenting or you're researching, you don't know what, what develops out of that. So thematically that, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And then you draw, so that's how many markers you draw and then you draw the markers and they have values between one and five. I think the average value, it's not um, like a perfect distribution between that, but it's like two and a half or something. It's like average. Um, yeah, so then you kind of put that into a pool and then all the kind of, this is one thing that has developed with the game. Um, there's an economic phase, which is where you do all the really uh, big stuff. So the game is long, okay? The game has, I think, 120 turns. Oh, that's all? But, okay. <laughs> but each turn is really short. Like you can do a turn, I mean, sometimes nothing happens on a turn. You could do a turn in... Uh, like, if you know what you're doing, you can do a turn in a minute, something like that. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. But then every 10 years, you have it like it's an inter decade thing, and you have an economic phase where you actually buy new technologies, you design new ships, um, you do political stuff. Like, all the kind of long term development stuff happens only once every decade. So there's only 12 of those. Right. But, but you have 120 opportunities to move around ships, explore, mine stuff things like that. Now, but often this is in the campaign game, you're saying, but there are shorter scenarios to where not everything's going to be 120 turns, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. There are shorter scenarios, but, I mean, if I know World in Flames, I know that people pretty much always just play the campaign. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, but at yeah. the same time, I mean, you're, you don't want to market this strictly to the World in Flames players. And so if somebody hears, oh, wow, I don't have an entire weekend to play there, then again, there are these smaller scenarios that they, they can they can start there and graduate up from there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely say they're uh, useful for uh, teaching people uh, tutorials and things like that. And, you know, we it's also just fun to play a scenario like one is like the AI taking over the solar system. Um and then you have to kind of they, they start with like this base head of Pluto and you have to fight them. And one, one like one of the simplest ones is just aliens attack Earth, build a fleet to stop them kind of thing. So oh, nice. Yeah. OK, 
the only aliens in the whole game, actually. Um, uh, well, there is like there are some events, and sometimes there's like maybe possibility of signals and stuff like that that gives you extra research. But basically, it's so the whole game is based around uh, plausible technologies. If if I had to describe it as closest to anything in terms of sci-fi or whatever, it'd actually be the Expanse, which I didn't know about until just a little a few months ago, uh, because it's really development of our solar system. It's uh, engines that we know are possible. It's technologies that we know are possible. It's no, no transporters, no warp drive. Um, it's, uh, it's real the, space, the most, right? Real space. The most advanced technologies are like hibernation, like cryopreservation of, of humans, like so for long duration transport, right, which right. is possible. Maybe we don't know how to do. It's all stuff that we don't necessarily know how to do today, but we know it could be done. Like there's antimatter engines, but they're not like you know, Star Trek antimatter engines where antimatter just powers a reaction to through the lithium chamber and creates a warp field, right? It's antimatter Obviously, like right? burn matter and antimatter in a cataclysmic uh, collision and it just creates very efficient energy source, right? So, uh, or fusion engines, stuff like that. So there are technologies that we don't know how to work today, but we know they exist. So that, I, I see... I dig this type of sci-fi and it's the same reason, like you said about the expanse that it's not the just fantastical star Wars, star Trek. Not that I don't like those just that if I, it's the same reason that I like historical war games that I don't want fantasy battles set with in a, in a fictitious world. I much prefer uh, modeled on real life, which sounds like this is, even if it is in near future real world stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It starts basically today, actually, 2030, so recognizable technologies today, and then kind of goes into the future, and it's that transition. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I don't mind fantasy at all. I just like it kind of to be separate from reality, I, I guess. Is, um, that, yeah. There you go. That's actually a really, really good way to put it, that... Um, a game like Forbidden Stars or a game like, I'm trying to think, uh, Gloomhaven, whatever, something like that to where if it's going to be fantastical or, you know, fantasy setting, make it way out there to where it's not, oh, hey, that doesn't make sense because you couldn't really do that, that type thing. Right, 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 exactly, yeah. All right, so so on that note then, um, since this, I guess because it's built in... I want to tread quite carefully and correct me if if I misspeak here that it's kind of built on the bones of a world in flames type system. Uh, did you consult with the world in flames guys with with them as far as or did you have enough experience with the game that hey I'm gonna take it from this and then take it to this next level? Oh yeah, definitely. I didn't consult with them except for some just some players. I've gotten some of the same players to play it. Um, but I, I guess, I mean, I chose 10-sided dice from Olden Flames just because it gives a lot of variability, but it doesn't get crazy. Like okay. 20 is probably too many different options. And it's also like mathematically simple to think about because it's all in 10% increments. Right, it's sure. easier than a six-sided dice, right? And it also gives more possibilities. So um, it, it took that. It took the same rules layout where it kind of talks about concepts. Like I did start with basically the World of Flames rules, although not a single uh, word is the same. Sure. No, no, no. And that's what I mean. I'm not saying that you're just, you know, basically yeah. taking World in Flames and throwing it up yeah. into space. I'm not saying that, but built upon yeah. 
the inspiration from World in Flames might be a better way to put it. Yes, although um, when the game first started out, it was actually much much less of a game and more like playing a spreadsheet. I actually started it by kind of making a bunch of spreadsheets. And originally I didn't have component pieces that you would put on your ships, but I had like you would just almost like a character sheet in Dungeons and & Dragons, and you would write down my ship has like three life support systems and two crew habitation modules and like two laser cannons and, and a rocket engine and a fuel tank, right? Okay. And it takes a certain amount of space and it costs a certain amount. I kind of liked it actually uh, to have like this character sheet for your ships, but um, you know, it wasn't as much of a game. So instead I went to this layout where you have your ships and they have slots and you buy components that you have the technology to produce and you put them into the slots. So it's just like, there's a, a bunch of games out there. I think Mech Warrior maybe, I haven't actually played that one, but where you, you kind of uh, fill slots and that's how you make a ship. Yeah, right? you're, build, you're, you're building your ship. I mean, there's basically a, a blank slate and you take this piece and you put it there or maybe this piece there instead. And it's a, you construct the ship that you want to construct. Yes, absolutely. And I guess that's probably inspired by Master of Orion or something like that. I used to like that game a lot. Um, so but, but so that's to say, like, none of the... It, it has a feel of World of Flames, but none of it is taken from World of Flames in any sense. Like, it's a totally different game. The map is totally different in... in um, so it's based on a spreadsheet of energies. So if you look at traveling throughout the solar system, we're down here on Earth, and we're in the center of a giant gravity well. Well, not the center, but we're on the surface of a planet with a giant gravity well on Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very expensive in terms of energy to take off into space. And that's why rocket launches are really hard. In fact, it's remarkable how close to the edge of possible we are on Earth, right? Rocket launches are extremely hard. You know, 95% of your rocket is fuel. It's fuel, right, right. right? Uh, we can launch like 5% or less of a rocket's mass into space. Um, if we lived on the moon, we could launch like 70%, you know, uh, earth is a remarkable place that it's like right on the edge of being able to get space. And if we started out in space already, like if we, this is actually one of the reasons why space settlement, uh, you know, the solar system development is really challenging, but it's not quite as challenging as it seems in a sense, because once you get off earth, it's really easy to travel around. Like if you had a bunch of asteroid bases, you could jump between them with your legs, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> you but, but, but the energy cost of traveling between different asteroids or traveling between asteroids and the moon or traveling between asteroids and Mars is a lot well, less than the right. energy cost of going anywhere near Earth at all, right? So one of the goals in Stellar Horizon is kind of to build eventually space stations and bases off Earth that have spaceports and can support ships so you don't actually have to return to this damn planet because this damn planet has way too much gravity, right? So it's Earth is kind of a detriment to us in getting off, right? Because it's it's a pretty it's a pretty big rock, not as big as Jupiter, but it is. Um, so the map is all laid out based on energies. So it costs, and it, it actually started with actual delta v's. Delta v is a change in velocity. So it's an aerospace engineering term where um, it's the amount of velocity you need to change from one orbit to another. So let's say the International Space Station is in orbit of Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And the only reason why it stays up in space is because it's traveling fast enough such that by the time it would hit the ground, it's always falling towards the ground. By the time it would hit the ground, 
the ground is no longer there. So it, it, this is what an orbit is exactly. So it's traveling around space, falling towards the center, but it's moving to the side so fast that it always stays up in space and will never hit the ground. I've never, I'll, I'll be honest, I have never stopped to think about that, but that, like, mind blown, just, wow, all right. So, all right, let, let's go off on a bit of a tangent then here, is the closest real-life space game that I do have any experience with up to this point is High Frontier. Uh, are you familiar with High Frontier? You know, I have never played it, I'm ashamed to say. Um, I have heard of it, but I actually only had heard of it in the last month or two when people said, hey, uh, someone posted on Board Game Geek, like, hey, fans of High Frontier, check out this game. Seriously? So, wow, that that is mind-blowing right there. Okay. Well, um, wow, because I, I, I was actually going to ask how how is it different than high frontier but well i guess i really can't answer that then or you can't answer that as it were um yeah i get the sense that maybe you can describe what high frontier is like i mean it, i get the sense that it's card driven largely it, it, it is it is it's it's all i mean for the most part it they're they're apples and bananas really is is what these are what these two games sound like because in a nutshell, let's see if I can do this. High Frontier is essentially about exploring space and colonizing and landing on outer planets and beings, different different things out in space. I don't know the right exact term, and I'm intimidated to get it wrong with you here. Uh, so High Frontier, it's all about get building up a rocket ship getting out of earth's gravitation and then going out and exploring the solar system and but it's all about math based and being able to calculate how much fuel you're going to need to be able to get from point a to point z and then also being able to land potentially on that planet and overcome its gravitation or and so that they sound like completely different games for the simple fact that Stellar Horizon is much more of a 4X as opposed to strictly exploration and just real science of getting your ship built up in exploring space. Yeah, definitely. It sounds, it sounds like you're exactly right there. Um, obviously, there is the concept of energy. So that's just like the movement cost in Stellar Horizon. To get off Earth, it's a movement cost of seven because it's seven kilometers per second is the velocity that you need to maintain orbit around Earth, right? Oh, and then okay. to go higher, um, it's like two additional. And then to get to Mars, it's like three additional uh, points. So I turned basically Delta V into movement points. Um, so it definitely has that element of being hard to get to big planets and forget about going anywhere near Jupiter or anything like that because it's extremely just extremely you know, hard. Not, yes. Yep. Well. And also there's no real point, you know, to <laughs> 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 mine um, uh, gases, helium and hydrogen, obviously really well in solar resin, but I have never seen anyone do it. <laughs> so okay. probably. Well, OK. So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, this is the thing. I think that I would say the difference is Stellar Horizon is very sandboxy in a sense. Like you are free to do whatever you want. Like there's, it's not driven by cards in any sense. Um, 
you can, there are missions. In fact, I introduced the idea of missions to try to make it less sandboxy because people, new players are like, well, what do I do? Yeah, too many, you, too many options. You right. <laughs> Anything you want. So, but, but the missions kind of gives a little bit more focus where you get extra points for doing like what your people tell you to do, right? To go to a particular planet, do a particular kind of mission. Um, but it's much more sandboxy in terms of, you could devote your whole budget to exploration. And, there, and there's difference between factions, too. So you might have certain advantages. So like Japan has the best robots, right? So uh, Japanese players tend to uh, just like explore with probes all over the entire solar system and never like send people for a while. You eventually have to because it's in the victory conditions. But, but Japan kind of just tries to dominate the exploration of the other solar system and stuff like that. Whereas Russia starts with a space station and they are kind of much more human focused and it, so there is direction, but uh, more in the bonuses of your factors. But you could do whatever you want. You can go explore places. You can totally ignore exploration and just do trade, or you could just do um, building bases, or you could just start attacking people. So your um, your faction, it gives you a, hey, you're going to get a benefit if you do A, but that doesn't mean you can't do these other things instead and just completely ignore it or do a little bit of this or that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we sort of designed the factions to. There's seven factions in the game, and they're all the country. They're all based around countries that have an ability to get to space, or that I think you know kind of are important blocks in the world. And a couple of them are miscellaneous. Like there's one that's South America and Africa, which is kind of like everyone else. Uh, but <laughs> it's based around Brazil, uh, which does have the ability to launch rockets and stuff. But then it includes, you know, because it is in the future also, so it includes like a big block from Africa and South America. So in that sense, I don't know whether it's realistic that these countries would get together, but uh, that's you know sort of their, um, their, their faction. Um, and they have an ability of, it's easier for them to get off earth because they're closer to the equator. So they have equatorial launch sites, but everyone has unique flavors in terms of their ship counter mix. Like um, Japan has better robots and more robots, uh, whereas Russia has better crew vehicles and more crew vehicles. Um, stuff like that like i think asia has like the most number of ships but they tend to be smaller um and you know everyone has unique abilities basically and i would say that north america as a canadian i kind of combined uh american <laughs> in canada right, right. <laughs> uh is kind of the vanilla faction in a sense um that all are are kind of based on it's pretty balanced right in the middle and everyone okay. else is kind of based off that like europe is really good at research for example um, and China is the most militaristic uh, one. Okay. So, all right, let's 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 go into big picture stuff here for a minute. And how how do you go about playtesting and developing this game? I mean, how does a game of this scope? Now, again, some of the scenarios you're you're talking an hour possibly or an entire weekend. How do you how do you even tackle that? Well, uh, it's been in development for more than 10 years, and it's gone through a lot of iterations. But uh, mostly I do playtesting on Vassal. I used to print out the game, so I would actually go to a printer and have, and I printed probably 15 different copies of it with everything printed, and then I cut out all the counters and stuff. But that's, Ooh. yeah, that's a lot of work just to get it working. Um, and I've played it with, over the years, with maybe 30 different groups or something like that a lot of different people and i always get suggestions but it's at this point it's almost uh hard for me to play in some sense because 
I'm constantly struck by what in World in Flames we call a ghost of with past, which is you can never remember what the latest rules are because <laughs> you're always tweaking things to make it slightly better. Uh, but then you figure out, oh, is that like the last version or is this like the current version? But anyway, like, <laughs> sometimes as the designer, I sometimes have to look up what the, the like actual rules are now. <laughs> like, wait, no, no, this is from two iterations ago. That doesn't apply anymore. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, but it's really, it's just a lot of uh, facile playtesting. So okay. running through games to the end. And uh, like in World of Flames, we started a lot more games than we finish. Um, just because you get to the point where I guess you really love that fresh slate and you're like, oh, I just really want to, you know, start over and see if I can do better next time and stuff like this. Um, but, All right. So, uh, we, so on that note, we, for, for folks that are not used to that mentality, because whether it's Euro players that really, really enjoy these big meaty games or people that this sounds fascinating to, but... They're like, wait a minute, what do you mean not finish a game? How how can you explain that to folks that are used to being, okay, here's the end of the game. You won, I lost. Okay, let's play another game. Well, I, I guess um, it's more about the journey than the destination. In some sense, it's like that sandboxy mentality I was thinking about or talk, talking about. So um, with World of Flames, um, it's a World War II game. So if you come to like late 1943 and the Germans are almost defeated or it, uh, conversely if the Germans have like taken over Russia and are you know sweeping through and have conquered England or something crazy like this um, you could be like well okay so we could play this for another two or three sessions or four sessions but uh, it's pretty obvious who's gonna win so let's just kind of restart right okay so when you're so when you're saying hey we'll go ahead and call the game, the winner's pretty much so. I don't know how familiar you are with train games or 18xx games, but a lot of times that's actually what happens is you don't actually make it all the way to the end. After X amount of hours, you're like, okay, it's obvious you're winning, you're losing, and we're somewhere in the middle. We can call it at this point. Yeah, I think that's that's the case. I've tried to put enough balancing elements into the game to Stellar Horizon that it's there's less of that. And we've kind of developed the discipline to also, you know, go to the end because we need to make sure that we play test end game pretty well too, sure. and that it's pretty there too. That's good to so, hear. Um, okay. Oh, but with, with play testing a new game, it's even worse than that. It's not just like, oh, you're winning, you're losing, so let's restart. It's more like, oh, let's introduce this rule change, um, and we really want to see how this works out for the whole game. So, <laughs> we so yeah, restart. you're losing, but we're gonna really beat you down and make you stick it out. Well, yeah, 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 but it's more of an excitement to try, like, oh, I wonder what this new rule is going to do. Okay. With, with playtesting, with playtesting. So the game is finished, is 100% finished. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, so, so on that note then, as a designer, and as you're sitting here telling me, hey, this has gone on for 10 years of development, this and that, and it's gone through all these iterations – as a designer, and this is my all-time favorite question to ask a designer, is how do you decide a game is done? And okay, let's put it out. Yeah, it's hard. Um, a game is never finished. It's merely abandoned, just like a book. Sure. And, you know, I, I'm confident I could tweak it 
for my entire lifetime and two other lifetimes. Uh, but it's been 10 years. It's pretty stable right now. I'm pretty happy with it right now. Um, I think it's pretty balanced. I've played this version to the end several times and I've had other groups do the same. So I think um, it's just time. Like, yes, I could tweak it. And yes, I might put out expansions. I might put out different variants, but you know, uh, it's probably a good time to call it. Okay. Um, on that note, now, again, because you're a war gamer, there, there are two words that a lot of people either really like or really hate that I'm going to ask is on that note, living rules, potentially? So World in Flames has the most living rules you could possibly imagine. Hence I mean, why it's been I asked, right. 30, it's been out for 30 years or more, actually. And they're coming out with a new iteration right now. We're playtesting on Vassal a new iteration of World of Flames right now for Harry. Um, so... You know, I hope it's not too much. Well, Fatal Alliances, I've already put out one rules iteration. So there is a whole new iteration of Fatal Alliances rules that add some more flavor, add some more interesting things. Um, Always tweaking, and, right? Yeah, and tweaks a few things. Like, I think the, the original game is, you know, great. It's perfectly playable, no big problems. But there are certain things I didn't like. Like, Austria-Hungary is treated as a normal country that just kind of conditionally surrenders in, in Fatal Alliances. Um, and I don't think that's historically what would have happened. I think that Austria-Hungary would have probably collapsed. And you probably, uh, and, and so I introduced a new rule for Austro-Hungarian Austro collapse in the game, where kind of the empire just dissolves if they run out of morale, right? And I think that's important. Um, it's playable with Austria-Hungary surrendering but staying intact, but I don't think it's probably what historically would have happened. But I didn't want to make an exception for them in the original game, because World of Flames... Uh, and Fatal Alliance is, is all about not having exceptions, trying to make standard rules that apply to all countries. But the, okay. the reality is that countries are different, you know. So in Austria-Hungary is different enough that it decided it probably needs an exception. Um, and people were asking for that. Um, so I listened to people on Board Game Geek, basically, if they put in suggestions. And, oh, I'd really like to see this. Or I tweaked the Russian Revolution a little bit because people wanted to see um, it to be more slightly more historical. Like... In the Russian Revolution, I just decided in the original Fatal Alliances that it would be too hard to come up with a universal rule that could really do the distribution of territory. So I just said, this is the border between Germany and Russia when Russia surrenders or goes into revolution. Um, it's not so historically there was a border, but could it have been different? Yeah, sure. Right. So, um, so, so these are almost like optional rules that if you want it to be historical or in stellar horizon, if you want it to be potentially, I'm saying down the road, yeah. you know, a little bit X, Y, or Z, you can sub in these rules, but it's not going to be a, you know, Hey, every six weeks we get a new, you know, standard set of rules. Yeah. Certainly not every six weeks. Well, about two years, but, right, right. But, uh, and it, I would characterize them as optional, sort of. Yeah, um, the per original game is perfectly playable. There wasn't a, a set of errata more than I would have liked, um, but you know, one page kind of thing. Oh, uh, that's not it, bad it, for for a war like game. Forty pages of rules or something like right. that. Right. So, yeah. All right. So, um, so let me ask you then. Uh, difficulties. Okay. Over over the ten years, I'm sure there's been trials and tribulations. But when designing a game that can go, like I said, anywhere from you know, in an hour to three days, depending on the given scenarios. Um, how do you 
Yeah, we'll start out. What difficulties have you encountered just with designing the, a game of this scope? Not going off on too big a tan tangent, I think, because I'm the type of person who you know wants to see everything included. Oh, I'd really like to have this be able to happen. Um, like some some have included in optional rules, but uh, there's a lot of possibilities that I see that are just not really possible in the rules that are just kind of like things that you don't need but would be cool. But they, if it takes like two pages of rules to explain one small thing, just Get Probably not a good idea, right? Exactly. So discipline, I would say. Um, like, originally I wanted uh, you to be able to capture ships in, in combat. You see, like, board the enemy ship and you'd capture them and you'd be able to use their ship and, you know. But that takes so many rules to explain exactly how that works. Like, does the original owner get their ship back and how is that not unbalancing? And, you know, all these things that I just like, okay, you can't capture ships. Okay. Because it's just, right. <laughs> it's not worth the rules to explain, especially uh, especially considering that combat is is a pretty minor part of the game. It's maybe like one fifth of a game or something like that. I want it to be possible, but I don't want to spend five pages of rules, and I think it's around twenty pages of, of rules, just talking about how you capture ships because that's probably what you would need. Because <laughs> there's so many different questions that could possibly that, arise. That that sounds unpleasant. Yes. All right. So, so kind of discipline, I guess, okay. would be the biggest thing. And, and like going from the character sheets where you could, and, and it may sound weird to say discipline in a game that is a monster and I've kind of let a lot of things get into, in a sense, like it's just such a big game. Um, it could be much bigger, but um, there's no limit to the scope, I guess. But, I'm, you know, I'm trying to set a limit. So, and my biggest fear, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, yeah. I was going to say, so what limitations have you put on yourself then? On that specific now, uh, other than okay, hey, I don't want to have to spend pages of rules to explain this one edge case, that type stuff. But other than that, have either you or Compass Games put any limitations on this game? Yes, um, I need the game to be a week playable in a weekend. Okay, so it has to be smaller than World in Flames, um, and it has to be something that people could play. Yeah, in a in a weekend if they know what they're doing a little bit. But definitely, I will not have it longer than that um and i guess just around the edges mechanisms i need them to be simple and and flow and and then that sort of thing so that for sure um everything okay so the game should have no memory this is a very core component of world and flames you shouldn't have to remember something that happened earlier right you have to have markers or counters for everything um there's no like writing down it all has to be like in the box right okay you know, no that that's an interesting concept there i guess to where it's all okay it's all right here so if you were to leave come back next week it's all right here you won't have forgotten yes. oh wait yeah, yeah. I mean, you may have forgotten what you're planning to do or what your strategy was, but and I often take notes of like, oh, plan to do this in this turn and stuff like this. But <laughs> but um, but the game has to all be there. There's no like pencil and paper. So that's one of the limitations that originally I did have. As I said, I used to have like character sheets and you used to. Okay, so here's one thing. I really like the idea of um, having like individual populations represented. Like on your moon base has 363 people and it grows by 10% per year or something like this, or probably less than 10%. But um, so <laughs> you now have 365 people on your moon base. And originally, believe it or not, I had that. 
on my character sheet of your base. And you do this math with a calculator to figure out how many people you now have on Mars. You really know and how to sell a game, don't you, Andrew? Something about that I just really love. But <laughs> that's not how games work. So now you have settlements, and your settlement goes level 1, level 2, level 3, up to level 16. And I still have a conversion chart where you can say, oh, 16 settlements means I have 100,000 people on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. And I, I got to say, man, this is so you, you're like so animated and you can hear the enthusiasm and I, I almost want to call it giddiness and excitement over this game that it's infectious. I mean, I already was stoked for the game, but dude, I your 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 excitement for this is definitely infectious, I think is a good way to put it, which is awesome to, to see and to to be around so this is very very cool um okay so you're an aerospace engineer you have space science is a lot more every day to you than it would be to the lay person how do you go about keeping the game accessible while also keeping yourself engaged in a game like this for design? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I try to use words that people will understand and uh, not overly complicate things. So, I, you know, it's fundamentally the movement in the solar system is based on delta V, but I don't call it delta V. I call it movement points. So it's something that people can understand. But even so, there are some concepts that people who aren't aerospace engineers, you know, might have to kind of they might be wondering like where it comes from so ships have like two movement properties they have thrust uh which comes from their engines and then they have movement points which comes from their fuel tanks so thrust is like the largest move you can ever make if you don't have enough thrust you aren't making a move ever right so basically in space spacecraft we have electric engines which are really um really efficient, but very low thrust. Right. Right. Deep space stuff. But so we can have like the Dawn spacecraft go to series and the Vesta and do orbital maneuvers, but they take months and weeks and stuff to, to do those orbital maneuvers. But you're never leaving Earth with those engines. So they have like something like an electric engine has really good movement point characteristics, so movements in deep space, but uh, terrible characteristics near a, a gravity well near a body like a, a world or something like that so so i guess i just try to introduce those two concepts and kind of explain a little bit of why we have this but i don't go into the details of what it really means like someone who is an aerospace engineer will see oh i kind of get why this is the way it is but um you know i try to just break it down into really gain things okay like, all right that makes sense yeah x movement points stuff like that so, so there's, uh, there's enough here for the actual physics of space that somebody that is into that at your level or approaching your level would be like, oh yeah, obviously X, Y, and Z. Whereas somebody like me, the lay person, just gamer person X would be like, oh yeah, okay. These movement points, this makes sense. 
Yeah, I guess I try to break it down into the bare minimum that you need to represent something physically. Like the the game started with something called launch windows, which is um, so the planets go around the sun at different rates, right? Like right. Earth takes one year to go around the sun. Mercury takes eighty four days. Saturn takes like sixteen years or something like that, right? So they go around the sun at different rates. This means that at different times you get different. Um, uh, it, it's more advantageous or less advantageous to launch to a different place in the solar system. So, like, we can only launch to Mars about once every two years because of the way the planets line up around the sun. Right. I and actually have a buddy of mine who works for JPL and was on the, the Mars mission that got scrapped and then postponed. So I, I, I actually am somewhat familiar with that. All right. And the, the other thing is to get deep into the solar system, like Voyager, we used gravity assists or slingshots uh, around planets to, to travel out to the solar system, uh, far out to get more energy to get shot out into the solar system. Um, so these are two concepts that I had really prominently in the first version of the game. Like you literally every year you track what year it is and do you have a launch window to other places or not. Um, and, you know, how you do gravity assist. So you have to go fly to Venus and then, you know, fly back to another planet and do another a gravity assist, right? I totally... I got rid of those. I did keep just enough that they're sort of there. You can do a gravity assist, but all it is is you can take longer to get to a place by spending less fuel. And it's called a gravity assist, but it's an optional way of moving. But you don't actually move your ship back and forth and back and forth. You just say, I'm going to do a gravity assist to Saturn. We're going to take an extra two turns, but we're going to spend like less fuel, right? So so that. Um, and then I just kind of like smoothed out the launch window thing. So, um, you know, it takes a year to get to Mars. Each turn is a year. So that's about the lowest I can break it down. But I don't have it like some turns it takes three years and some turns it takes less than that. All right. So so to to make sure that I'm understanding you, the, you made it more of a game and less of a simulation? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to make it as much of a game as possible. Okay. Now, I I should say, I actually know how to turn this into a simple, relatively simple game. Um, you could have ships that are predefined. So you can have a ship that has certain characteristics that have like an attack value and a defense value and a mining value and a, um, a cargo capacity and a movement allowance and stuff like this. So you can have like a frigate that's like specified and stuff. Right. So... This could be a much simpler game if you had ships that were predefined and predesigned. That you would just say, this ship is a rover and it goes and lands on, it can land on Mars and it can explore. Um, but the whole, the core of the game, this is like one of the fundamental decisions I made, was the core of the game is ship design. So you design your own ships with components. And that takes, that makes it more complicated, increases the number of counters, increases the time, but it's also kind of a, the heart or core of the game. So I could turn it into um, a simpler game, but it would be a totally different game, right? It wouldn't be a build your own space program. It wouldn't be a design your own ship. And that's like the number one thing that I liked about Master of Orion uh, or, or those kinds of games where you get to design your ships. Like you really want to be like an aerospace engineer or something and, and build your own ships, right? Right, um, of course. So so that's the trade-off, I guess. That's what makes it a complicated game, is designing your own ships. But it's also kind of what makes it a fun build-your-own space program game. Yeah, I, I mean, that everybody likes giving their ships their own character, their own flair, their own feel, right? I mean, that's the whole... that 
that's one of the biggest, I, I, at least for me, that's one of the biggest appeals of this game. So I'm glad to hear that that's one of the core tenets of this game. So anything else as far as just Stellar Horizon in general? Anything um, else that no, you no. want to tell folks? I know it's, do you know a time frame on 2018? I mean, I know sometime next year, but. Well, so Compass, um, they said late 2017 is still a possibility or early oh. 2018. I don't okay. really know. I think targets a little bit, but um, that's pretty much completely dependent on Compass at this point. Okay. Um, I've released, well, I've released a final version, but uh, I'm, I don't have any updates, but I might right before they go to printing tweak one or two things, but not about the rules, just um, like editing or something like that. Sure. Um, like I left a typo or something like that. But uh, no, so um, sh should be, I'd say realistically early 2018 is, it, I guess if that's what they're thinking because these things are rarely early. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So. All right. So uh, for folks that are interested, I know you can pre-order without paying. You just put in your order and then when it's getting ready to ship, kind of like GMT's P500 system, you can go to Compass Games. I think it's compassgames.com and Stellar Horizon is on their pre-order page. So price point uh, for the pre-order, I think last I saw it's not cheap, but if you're an 18xx fan, it's it's reasonable. Uh, you said something like 1600 counters and such. You're looking at 105 bucks. Uh, the pre-order price, I believe, is what I saw. Yeah, it's a big game. You have a big map. You have each faction. Each player has a faction sheet that they design their sheet, uh, their ships on. They build their bases on, store the resources. So you kind of have a lot of individual flavor of what faction you play. Um, and you have components from ships that you kind of build on your sheet. Um, and then you have like the ship that goes on the map and moves around. Um, and then that's the main, main parts of the game. Oh, and then a tech chart actually. So they, yes, and um, that tech chart is intimidating in the, uh, yeah. in the best way. I mean, I, I, that's what got me so excited about the game. When I first heard about it, I saw the tech tree and I'm like, really? I'm sold. I, this looks unbelievable. Like there's just... <laughs> it feels like there's 2,000 options. There's not. I'm exaggerating. But it just, when you look at it, you're either going to be completely intimidated or completely enthralled by it, I think is a fair takeaway from that. Yep. I think that's probably right. Yeah. All right. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. If you're familiar with Civilization or something, though, I mean, just think about it like that. I guess, like, Civilization's actually got a much bigger tech chart, I think, but, of course, it's kind of hidden in the computer, and you just have, like, one choice at a time or something like that. But uh, but really, like, it just flows left to right. You have to have all the ones to the left before you get one to the right. The cost of each tech is marked. You just pay in, in tech markers. Um, and the other thing is it kind of increments slowly, so I think that you, um, you know, you're not kind of faced with all the choices at once you have like one or two choices at a time because you can only get the ones that you are connected to your text already oh another thing is um like the counters so there is like a reference sheet for those counters um there's like a zoomed in version that says what the counter does um for new players it might be one thing is like you might have trouble figuring out exactly whatever counter does so there's like a list of 48 different components i think you can put on ships um and it does require some cross reference cross-reference for the start but once you get it you don't even have to like yeah you know, look at it at all i, I think so 
Okay. All right. So as you get more experience with the game, it becomes second nature. That makes sense, right? Right. But the other thing is um, there are really good tutorials in the rules. So there's complete walkthroughs of doing exploration, of doing combat, of doing... um, This is something that Compass actually really demanded. I guess, I don't know if I necessarily would have done this on my own, but uh, it's like a really baby steps walkthrough of the first decade of the of the game and then different various concepts like building a base um having combat developing technologies even every mechanism in the game there's like a tutorial baby step walkthrough awesome so if it's like complicated uh i might do videos too actually so yeah you know i i happen to know somebody that does videos for those just just saying yeah that's great (laughs) so awesome man this This sounds really, really exciting. Legitimately, uh, you've done nothing to temper my excitement, which sucks since I got to wait another six months, eight months or so until I get my hands on a copy of the game. Um, But it's a good problem to have, right? I mean, it's good to anticipate stuff. So so since this has taken you 10 years plus in design and development, I I imagine this is kind of – this is – your baby. I mean, this is the game, right? Do you have anything else in a pipeline other than that? Uh, well, I have several books in the pipeline. I have two more kids' books. One's a graphic novel, uh, sci-fi um, on Mars and in the solar system. Uh, one's um, another kids' book, rocket science, basically how space rockets and uh, spaceships work. Um, it's sort of based on the same series that I had, Epic Space Adventure, with... Um, you have to go to rescue a Mar- uh, Mars rover. It's a team of animals. It's a kid's book. No, I, I actually, I, I saw the, the Kickstarters for him. I watched the videos. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I definitely have books. And I have a nonfiction adult book about the history of exploration from the beginning of humanity into the future. So that will come out in the next couple of years as well. Do you have a um, name so people can keep an eye on it for it? Um, I have a working title. What is it? I think it's just called Explorers. But, okay. Uh, thinking about different ones, but Explorers is definitely a possibility. Yeah. Okay. Or Wander. Actually, Wanderers. That's. It. I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, it's a working title, right? It's a working title, but the book is completely written. Nice. Okay. All right. Um. So we had a question here. Uh. Can you say again? Did you say about? 20 or was it 30 pages on the rule book? Um, I think it's 20 pages of rules, but then there's the tutorials, which are about 10. Okay, cool. All but right. Yeah. All right. So in now, areas and like that, yeah. okay. All right. So in every conversations with heavy cardboard, I finish them with a series of uh, six fun yet hopefully thought provoking questions that off the top of your head, all right? Completely unrelated to anything that we've been talking about, all right? Yeah. All right, you down for this, Andrew? Sure, sure. All right, so here we go. Number I'll one. have to respond to each one. Say again? I like to know the rules. So how long do I have to respond to each one? Uh, we'll, we'll say 10 to 15 seconds at most, but ideally okay. shorter. Okay, yeah. And you don't have to explain your answer, but it's always more interesting if you do. Okay. All right. So here we go. Number one, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? Really young. It's 
It's got to be a number. Oh, uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, fair enough. All right. So, second question. You know, right? Like one year old. Uh, well, I guess some one year olds know, but yeah. zero, can, zero point five. <laughs> five. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number two. If you could master one skill that you do not have right now, what would it be? Could be Does that have to be a plausible skill? Like, can I say flying or walking through walls? No, no. Uh, well, I uh, I was thinking more more real life, but sure, if you want to walk through walls, knock yourself out. Or uh, immortality. <laughs> it's not really a skill, though. Skill. Just being immortal. <laughs> um one skill like woodworking or i mean i don't know i mean i feel like i probably could if i really set my mind to it so i don't know that you know but, but you if, don't if have one the skill, skill right really now? want to master i probably would have you know i didn't I really realize this was going to be this this difficult but i guess it, right. when i i over, always overanalyze questions I always argued with the teachers too, unfortunately. <laughs> so you didn't, you, you have, so you're saying that there's no skill that you, that you don't have that you would want to master because you could master it if you put your mind to it. I suppose so. Okay. Wow. That's audacious. I like it though. It's confident. I mean, that. That's not to say it would be easy. No, no. Anything worth doing is not easy. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now now I'm terrified to ask the rest of these. All right. Here we go. Uh, what are three things? Uh, I'm sorry. Wait. No. I skipped one. Number three. If you could have dinner and conversation with any one person in history, who would it be? Yeah. <sighs> So with time travel questions, I always say I would like to go into the future rather than the past because you never know what's going to happen, whereas you can always read about history, right? So theoretically, it would be someone from the future, but I couldn't put a name on that person because I don't know who's going to live. But uh, do I have a translator also? Yeah, or absolutely. Someone? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, if it were somebody like Alexander the Great, you wouldn't be able to communicate otherwise, right? Right. And also, is that person going to be receptive? Because I think Alexander would just wouldn't have the time for me, you know. No, let, but I actually always had these ideas that maybe you could go into the past and you could invent a bunch of stuff, right? Like, you'd be, if you went to the past and you knew how to build things, you'd be like a magician. You'd probably get killed, though. You would, either they, as a heretic or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I don't know, honestly, I don't really have a great answer for this, but Jesus would be a good choice actually, because you find out what's the deal with Jesus really. Sure. You know? I, uh, I, I think it's a solid choice. Yeah. Uh, but like, I don't know, Alexander the Great sounds good or Julius Caesar or something like that, as long as they don't kill you. Right. And, and have you ever noticed that whenever people tend to answer these questions, it's either a religious leader or a great general in history. It tends to be those two types. Well, those are the people that are really famous, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, I could go for scientists too, but you well, can just and, like... And that's kind of where I thought you would go, to be honest. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the first name that jumped to my mind is Carl Sagan, actually. Okay. okay. I think that would be a really fun, Well, I mean, again, off the top of your head, you're not following the rules, Andrew. Okay. Carl Sagan is my answer. <laughs> 
I appreciate you having fun with this though. Uh, all right. Number four, what are three things that you want more of right now? Anything could be time, could be money, could be experience in X, Y, or Z could be philosophical, physical, whatever you want ideas. I don't know. Time, money, and fun. Okay. Good enough. The, 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 I think if you had more of those, you'd definitely be winning life. And by you, I mean the, the royal you. Yeah. Uh, all right. What do you appreciate most in your friends other than the ability to play giant Jenga? Insight. Ooh, good so one. So they come up with ideas that you hadn't thought of or they have a different perspective on something. I like that. Good answer. All right. And this one I think is really going to be interesting for you specifically of all the people I've interviewed so far. I'm, I'm, I think, yeah, I'm curious. Number six, last question. What is your absolute dream job? Oh, it's my current job. Okay. I, I wasn't sure. Uh... That or possibly astronaut. Um, I was applying to be, I've applied to be an astronaut a couple times, but. I saw uh, that didn't... and I didn't know if it was a sore subject, so I didn't bring it up. No, 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 not at all, actually. It's pretty much the hardest job you could ever apply to do. Um, but, you know, I mean, honestly, I like to design spaceships almost as much as ride them. So, yeah, current job, really. Okay, awesome. Well, cool, man. That's uh, that's all I got. This has been this has been fun for at least me. It has been. So thank you for taking the time for doing to do this. This has been really cool. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so everybody, uh, everybody watching uh, live and after the fact, hopefully y'all have uh, enjoyed it. And definitely, um, if you're a, if you're a heavy war or heavy gamer in 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 general, or you're a space nut fan, I would definitely recommend going checking out Stellar Horizon uh, coming out from Compass Games. Check it out, CompassGames.com. And uh, last but not least, uh, final plug for our patrons. Thanks to the 284 patrons that we have supporting the show patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard if you want to uh check out more of these and you want access to more of these definitely uh i think consider supporting the show patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard and with that i really appreciate you all joining us andrew uh on behalf of my co-host and wife who's over in the office thank you very much thank you it's all been right. great yeah all right. all right take care guys 